0: The Low Post is presented by Amazon Music. Did you know you could be listening to this episode of The Low Post ad-free on Amazon Music?
1: And now, The Low
0: Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Friday morning. I just returned home from Boston, Massachusetts on an Amtrak. Nick Friedel just got to Miami, Florida from Boston, Massachusetts. We're tired, we're cranky, we're punchy. But as Michael Scott would say, ooh, how the turntables... Wait a second. The Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics. Oh, baby. The Miami Heat's 3-0 lead feels like a distant memory now. It's bloody sock time in game six. The Celtics have roared back into the series. The Heat's three-point shooting extravaganza has fallen back to earth. The Celtics all of a sudden look like the deeper and more talented team that they were. The entire regular season. The team that I had the poor guys at ESPN Stats and Info comb through all of NBA history to confirm my suspicion that the Celtics are on paper, on paper, by far the best candidate in NBA history to come back from a 3-0 deficit given their seating, the heat seating, the fact that they have home court advantage, all of it. Gabe Vincent's injury has taken the heat down below the critical mass of necessary rotation players, especially when they clearly have... Very little confidence left in Kevin Love and Cody Zeller, both of whom had their minutes reduced and or eliminated in the competitive portion of last night's shellacking in Boston. And now, Mr. Friedel, now the Miami Heat find themselves in a situation quite similar to the Boston Celtics found themselves in all 13 years ago against your Orlando Magic The 2010 Orlando Magic, who I thought were maybe the best team in the entire NBA, dropped the first three games of the conference finals against the number four-seeded underdog Boston Celtics, came back and won the next two, and forced a very pressurized underdog home game six to try to stave off history in Boston. That's one of the Shrek and Donkey games. Of the Nate Robinson, Big Baby Davis era. Sorry to bring back memories. And that's what it's going to be like in Miami tomorrow night. Because obviously the Celtics have been bad at home. But if they get this one in Miami, they're going to be feeling great. They're already feeling great. You cue up the Johnny Damon Grand Slam clips. My cousin Derek Lowe throwing sliders and curveballs right by the Yankees in Game 7 at Yankee Stadium. F the Yankees, by the way. Just have to get that out of the way. Mr. Friedel, you're back in Miami, my friend.
2: And if they don't win Saturday night, Mr. Lowe, I think that is a wrap. I would never say 100% for sure because Jimmy could have a crazy Jimmy game, but I think it's important for us to start right there. Jimmy looked human for the first time in the postseason. In Game 5 in Boston, they really limited him. But as I've watched him in this series, he looks like he's tired. He really does look like all those minutes have caught up to him. So it is imperative for him now over the next 24 hours or so to recharge the batteries and do whatever he has to do to take a deep breath and and pour everything that they've got into Game 6. I would expect him to play all 48 or really, really close to it and watch the Heat just push all the chips in to try and finish this thing because Boston is playing with a different level of confidence. And when you are not getting those shots that Max Strews hit and Duncan Robinson hit and you're playing without Gabe Vincent, his status for game six is still uncertain. And there are all those variables. It has to come down to Jimmy. And if Jimmy is not putting up 40-plus points and carrying that whole team down the stretch, this Heat team is in big trouble.
0: Well, the tell for me last night was that um, there were several possessions on which he got the Derek White switch that he has brutalized through the first couple of games of this series. And forget the ones where Derek White kind of stood him up and Mm -hmm. didn't go for his pump fakes, and Jimmy really didn't kind of mow him down other than one or two possessions. Like, those are are good defensive possessions – Derek White's going to do that every once in a while. He's going to block his shot every once in a while. I thought it was telling that on some of those possessions, he kicked the ball out one pass away and didn't ask for a repost. I thought it was even more telling on some of those possessions when he got the switch that he didn't get the ball or ask for the ball at all. There was one where he got it in the first half, I think in the second quarter, on the right wing, they ran an action to get him that switch, and he just sort of faded over to the baseline, and the Heat were like, oh, let's just kick it around and Caleb Martin ended up going one-on-one and drawing a foul because Caleb Martin has become a combination of like Steph Curry and Michael Jordan in this series, I think. Um, (laughs) But I I thought that was very telling and Jimmy has averaged 19 a game over the last three games. Now they didn't need him in game three. So chalk that one up to that. And then he had 29, but uh, a 29 were that left you feeling a little wanting, In game four, he missed a lot of bunnies in that game. And last night just didn't really get into the game. Then they sat him in the fourth quarter for most of the fourth quarter and said, yeah, we're done. We're going to rest you for game six. And Bam, Bam was silent last night and has averaged 13 points a game in the last three games. 13 points. And I thought one of, if not the biggest stories of the game last night was, and you could see this brewing at the end of game five was Boston has started to switch more and switch in lots of different places, including Horford onto Butler and daring him. like we don't, we don't actually think you can beat Al Horford that badly, and he did not last night. And putting everybody but Derek White onto BAM on switches. Yep. And the Heat looked caught off guard by that last night. They looked like they did not have a plan for it. Um, and by the way, credit Joe Missoula. Like we're sitting here talking about Boston making an adjustment. They caught Eric Spolstra maybe a little on the back foot and they dumped it to Bam in the post. Bam post, Bam had eight post touches last night, according to Second Spectrum. That's his most of the playoffs, his second most in any game this season. Would you like to hear the points per possession numbers that he generated on those eight post touches, Mr. Friedel?
2: I feel like there's a big yikes coming here.
0: It's a yikes. 0.286 yeah. points per position.
2: Not so and, hot.
0: And and it's because the Celtics' wings, other than White, are very strong and hard to move. It's because Bam is not a great back-to-the-basket player. And it's because for the first time in this series, the Celtics started to show the Heat bodies when they had a matchup that they liked, the Heat liked. So, and it's not necessarily a hard double team. It's, it's just not standing in no man's land. It's not staying home. It's doing what the Heat do, which is dig down a little bit, slide back, make you think, zone up, get your hands out, get on your toes, get in between. Be in no man's land, kind of, but be active in no man's land and make you think, make you uncertain, make you second guess. That's what the Heat have been doing to Boston the whole series. That's what Boston did last night. It helped that Haywood Highsmith played, and they didn't guard him, and he made threes. But um, I thought their defense was was really, really good. And and I think going into game six, item one for Miami, other than Jimmy's just got to play a Jimmy game and Bam's got to play better, is if those switches are coming and now you know they're probably going to come, what do you do to counter them? And I think that's going to be an interesting
2: subplot. I think you're spot on because when you watch that game – And you were looking to see what Bam was going to give you. Every time they switched, he just couldn't take advantage of of what was coming. And Zach, if you're the Heat and you have to get a certain level of performance from Jimmy and you have to get a certain level of performance from Bam, and that is the baseline for pulling out uh, so many of these wins in the postseason – we haven't even gotten to the part where it's like, okay, well, is Robinson hitting shots, or is Struce hitting shots, or uh, is Martin or Vincent's out there? Who is that other person who helps? But Bam just has not played that well in these last couple of games. You,
0: you know who it was not yesterday: Nick Firdell, Kyle Lowry, cool. and
2: who's awful, and awful I, in that game.
0: I, I'm a, I'm a fan of Kyle Lowry's, as a lot of basketball nerds are. And talking to the Heat people the day of the game and the day before the game, once it was clear Vincent's uh, uh, availability was in jeopardy, there was kind of a sense of this is kind of what we've been saving Kyle for, a moment like this. This is the moment. His his minutes load this season because we made him a backup for legitimate reasons. Obviously, has not been very high. He's been good for the most part in the playoffs, better than he was in the regular season. They were ready, I think, to dial him up to 30, 35 minutes last night without Vincent. And he just wasn't up to it. And he wasn't up to it right from the start. And I mentioned the Celtics switching. That's one thing they didn't switch. They dropped back against Kyle Lowry's pick and rolls. And we're like, we're going to chase you over the screen. We're going to make you hit long twos. We're going to make you make decisions in space. And he just made a bunch of bad decisions. He he would jump to shoot and then decide, I don't want to shoot. I'm gonna be do the Kyle Lowry thing where I do in the regular season, which is pass up shots that I should take. Four turnovers and four points. Just I, I hate to say it like this, but just a total no-show in a game where they absolutely needed something from their point guards because that was a place where you could where Boston was not as willing to switch, or if they were. That's where you need kind of a jitterbug point guard to like reject picks, to to fool the switch, to 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 split screens, to split to split two man games if they switch or if they try to blitz, and and that's what Gabe Vincent's been doing, and Kyle wasn't able to do it.
2: Zach, in so many ways, that game last night was over in about six or seven minutes. And It was a
0: boring game, honestly, for for a game of that magnitude. It was It was very like, boring. Is this going once... to get exciting at any point?
2: <laughs> and, and it didn't. <laughs> but part of the reason it didn't is because Lowry came out and those first few possessions, he already had two turnovers. And you're going, well, this isn't good. And to, to back up what you were saying, we got to shoot around yesterday morning. And Spolster didn't want to reveal exactly who would start in Vincent's place, but everybody figured, all right, it's got to be Lowry. And he kept saying, this is our Hall of Fame quarterback. And to be able to put that guy in this lineup is exactly why he's here, because he has the confidence of everybody having been through all these big moments before. He won the title in Toronto. You referenced all the years that he's played in big games. He's shown up. He's delivered. I mean, go back to that Knicks series from a couple weeks ago. He was really good, and he was hitting from the outside. Scoring
0: points and also just doing all the annoying Kyle Lowry things, poking away rebounds. All over. Drawing charges. just Just all the boxing people out in a very annoying way. Just being annoying Kyle Lowry, and I mean that as affectionately
2: as possible. And once they didn't have that, everything unraveled from that point. And what you realize at this point for the Heat is, is it's still within Lowry to have a big game? Sure. But the consistency that the Heat and Spolster were hoping to see is gone. You just don't know anymore night to night which Lowry is going to show up. And that makes Vincent's absence even more. But, Zach, I'd add this point on. We started talking about Bam and the adjustments the Celtics made on him and how Spolster is going to have to bounce back. What I thought was interesting in uh, Bam's brief press conference last night was he's sitting there going, it's very clear what the Celtics are doing now. They are getting the ball and running as fast as they can up the floor, and they're trying to knock down shots from the outside. And once that happens, and they found a little bit of a a rhythm here in the last couple of games, the Heat are just going, oh, whoa, what do we do? Because they wanted to slow everything down and they wanted to defend and switch and uh, they caught a big break because boston could not get it going from the outside well now they have and the depth that everybody had discussed before the series started is becoming even bigger than we imagined at this point right now
0: with with the one exception to monitor of Malcolm Brogdon who did not play in the second half last night and has this elbow tendon thing reported first by Jared Weiss at the Athletic and you know look Boston has the perimeter depth to withstand that I mean that's an injury where that's a position rather where they can take a hit and survive particularly against a team that's dealing with a ton of injuries already in Miami Two guys drove to work Neither guy wore a seatbelt One guy got a ticket Because of the eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's reset the series real fast. We're, we know we're 3-2. Uh, the total score of the series is now Miami plus 9. Boston is plus 30 in the last two games, and they're still minus 9 for the series. Some of the key areas that you know you would you would think particularly a Jimmy team might win. Boston has 16 more free throw attempts for the series. That's big. They have 14 more offensive rebounds for the series, and they're gang rebounding last night. And that's how you have to rebound if you're going to switch and you're going to put wings on Bam. You got a crash back on the glass. And I thought Tatum had a bunch of gritty box outs. Brown had a bunch of gritty box outs. Smart is always just hitting people. Their gang rebounding was awesome. 14 more offensive rebounds in Miami for the series. Three fewer turnovers, including 12 fewer turnovers in the last two games. The turnover pendulum totally swung to Boston. Some of that is just Miami, I think, feeling the weight of we don't have a lot of reliable creators right now, particularly with the Vincent out last night. And three-point shooting, Boston has taken 43 more threes in the series than Miami. They've only made four more. That's how bad they were shooting and how well Miami was shooting. Last two games, Miami's 17 of 55 on threes. So that's what, like less than 33%. And Boston, 34 of 84. So they took almost 30 more threes combined in the last two games. And, um... Lineup wise, Boston starters are now plus 22 in 50 minutes in the series. That has ultimately been the right call. Joe Missoula stuck with it. And I thought it was, I thought this was less of a double big series. And it looked like they were going to waver on that. And then he went back to the small ball lineup and stuck with it. And that's worked. The double big lineups they are playing, which are exclusively Grant Williams lineups, they're not playing the Rob Al lineups took a turn for the positive in the last two games and it just feels like they're they're obviously they're getting a rhythm they found something with this switching on defense and and the other thing is Miami came out last night after Boston in game four had found something with its ball movement when Miami blitzed the pick and roll and put two on the ball my Boston made a decision we're going to we're gonna bank on the pass. No one is going to force it. If the, if we get two on the ball, and Tatum, I thought, was a, the leader of this for Boston in Game 4, if you put two on the ball, I'm passing it out right away. I'm hitting the release valve right away. I'm hitting the corner guy, Rob, not forcing it. We're going to rely on the pass. We're going to rely on these connected sequences of pass, pass, pass. Sometimes they won't work because Miami's awesome. Sometimes I'm going to need to go one-on-one when I got Gabe Vincent on me, and we're going to do that, and I'm going to make shots over him. But – we're going to rely on the pass. And Miami last night watched the film of Game 4 and said, we're going to do some stuff to try to take that simple read away from them. And it's stuff I talked about before the game. It was very simple. Number one, we're going to switch more. And number two, we're going to play a ton of zone. And they did play a ton of zone. And you know what? For the first time in this series, the Celtics lit it up in last night's game. 1.43 points per possession against the zone. And just really kind of effective just methodical ways to get corner threes, two-on-ones on on the sideline, just a really purposeful performance by Boston. And now you just kind of don't know what Miami's defensive answer is going to be either.
2: Well, and that's the scary part, Zach, because to the point about the extra pass and how Boston made it a, a focus to say, all right, we're going to just keep looking for that guy who's got to be open somewhere. Go back to the first quarter of that game. How many wide open threes were the Celtics getting? Specifically, Marcus Smart hit several huge momentum-building big threes early on. And you, you're you looking at Miami's defense you're going, uh-oh. Because not only were they getting beat to the punch in that regard by the Celtics deciding, all right, we're going to swing it and we're going to make sure somebody has that open look. Miami didn't have a defender anywhere near anybody. I mean, it was like... All and right. when
0: they did, Boston still made shots. Like I think back to up. that the Derek White three at the buzzer of the first yes. quarter where Max Strus was like in his jersey. Jalen Brown made a three in the second quarter against the zone where they had nothing going. He was just like dribbling the ball. Oh, I gotta shoot, and made it. And Boom. that's the shot making thing. Like they just they they made tough shots and they got a lot of good shots.
2: And this goes back to the point that we've got to hammer home, which is it was so obvious before the series. You looked at both rosters and you went, okay. Who's got more guys who can create and make something happen offensively? And it's the Celtics over and over again. And what we've seen in these last two games is a regression to the mean for the heat, where if they're not shooting the absolute lights out, they got a problem. So uh, in many ways, everything has kind of evened out a little bit more. But I would tell you all this and add the context of while it feels like Boston not only has all the momentum, but is building towards the biggest comeback that, that we've ever seen in the postseason. Being around that heat team and being in the locker room last night, it felt like, hey, everything's okay. Jimmy's walking up Zach to the podium and he's eating popcorn and he's going, We're gonna find a way to win on Saturday. We're going to make it happen. I, I saw Hopefully. him
0: walk I'm saw so him walking out we said hello with his agent and uh, his main kind of training guru walking out of the arena and that we kind of exchanged a joke about just nothing, but not the series. And everyone was all chuckles and chuckles and oh, eating yeah. popcorn, chuckles and eating popcorn. Like he's certainly not going to evince any weakness. That's one thing for sure about Jimmy.
2: No. And there is a reason why he's trying to exude the ultimate confidence because he knows that he sets the tone for everybody else in there. But I thought, uh, One of the most intriguing answers was from Spolster. And he said, in his experience, it doesn't really carry over from game to game. He's like, forget the momentum. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. Now, I would tell you, having watched enough of these series through time, I think that there is something to be said for a team that gets hot and gets rolling and starts feeling really good about itself. Uh, But this team, this Miami team, still right now, thinks, okay, well, We got drilled these last couple games. Forget about it. Going to game six, get Jimmy rolling. And Kevin Love was in there, and he said, we expect Jimmy Butler to be Jimmy Butler on Saturday night. And if that's the case, especially early, you can knock down all this hype that's around Boston right now, and you could just say, hey, we get the ball to Jimmy. He's going to create space for other guys. They're going to get the same looks they've gotten throughout the series. They just have to knock them down. But anybody who's thinking, oh, no, Miami's lost these two games and the sky is falling, that is not what they were projecting after that game last night.
0: Well, a couple of things. You mentioned Kevin Love, and I, I, I wrote this before before game five. I, I said bringing Love off the bench might be too radical a move for a team that's up 3-1, but they've just got to get to Caleb Martin at the four more yep. and earlier yep. And I think now with them having brought Love off the bench in the second half last night, depending on Gabe Vincent's health and whatever, I, I think it might just be time to start your best lineup and ride it as long as possible. Maybe it was past time. They're, they're still plus 30 for the series in 73 minutes with Butler, Bam, and Martin on the floor who have been their three best players. It, it might just be time to start that series. I and But the big man, I mean... The big man rotation other than Bam is just in complete shambles right now. The, you know now Boston, the first five possessions of every game, is just where's Kevin Love on Al Horford? We're hunting him down every time. All the way. Tatum got a, a an and one when Kevin Love abandoned his, his dropper. It might, it might have been a just a straight dunk. I can't remember. And then the next time, same play, Tatum, Horford, pick and roll, same thing. Horford's wide open for three. Tatum kicks it to him. Trust the pass. They send the third guy up from the corner to like flash it out, and Al swings it to Jalen Brown. Three. Okay, we can't play Kevin Love. They're picking on him. All right, Bam needs to rest. Let's bring in Cody Zeller. Oh no, they're gonna go at Cody Zeller in the Here pick and go roll again. every time with Rob Williams screening now, and he's gonna. And Rob has been really cagey. Rob Williams, don't I see you? Flip disguising which which direction you're gonna set that screen until the very last second, and Cody Martin is just, like, picking the wrong door every time. Like, just picking the wrong side. Just He's 10 feet out of the play. It's like he's just guessing randomly and guessing wrong every single time. And so, okay, we can't play Cody Zeller. What the hell are we going to do? They're, like, running out of big guys to play. They have Bam. And I bet Highsmith will get minutes in in game uh, six because he, he made shots, and that's really what they need. But, you know, you meant, like, I would pay – and the stories will come out at some point. And I don't know what the stories are. I've heard a lot of different things. I don't know what's true, what's not true. I would have paid I would pay good amount of money to get in a time machine and be in the Celtics locker room at halftime of game three and after game three. Because not only have we not seen a team rally from 3-0 ever, not only have we not seen a team rally to get to Game 7 since 2003, the Blazers, 20 years ago. By the way, Damon Stoudemire was on that Blazers team, was the Celtics assistant coach for for until like February when he left for Georgia Tech. Damon Stoudemire, if he were on the bench now, he'd be getting asked this question every game by reporters. Not only have we not seen that in 20 years, just the Game 7. I just don't recall, and I know Kevin Pelton found examples of teams going down 3-0, and winning and losing in blowout fashion in game three, and then coming back to win game four. There are blowout losses and there are blowout losses. And that loss in game three was as blatant and obvious a we give up, we're not playing together anymore loss as you will see a good team have. And to come back from that and to come back this way. And win two in a row this way and immediately snap back into togetherness is one of the rarest things that I can recall in the NBA. And the Celtics, like you you can sit here and say the Missoula thing and the players, you know, like Gary Washburn had a tweet from the Boston Globe who knows this team as well as anyone about how Jalen Brown's biting his tongue on the podium about stuff that's gone wrong this year. There's stuff. There's stuff. That's why I would have paid a lot of money to be in that locker room when some of this stuff was probably aired. But it takes some strong backbone and culture to, in a moment, go from that to this. And, by the way, I'm making Red Sox jokes like Bloody Sock, and they they clearly are all saying, you know, don't let us get one, like Kevin Moar said Yeah, in we, we had the
2: idiot sign in there last night.
0: I'm, I've been told by several reliable people – that this is not a coincidence that they are game by game watching clips in the locker room or being showed clips in the locker room of what is it? Four days in October. I think it was a yeah. 30 for 30 about that series. So like now they'll watch the game six clips. Like it's not a coincidence that they are parroting this. And on the one sense, I don't know that you want to really like embrace being down three Oh, but they've embraced it and they're embracing the Boston thing. And look, I am not and was not a Red Sox fan ever. I was a diehard Mets fan growing up. I say this as affectionately as possible. If Boston, the city of Boston, and its very passionate sports fans, get the first baseball 3-0 comeback ever and the first basketball 3-0 comeback ever, the level of Boston-ness is going to drive the rest of the world absolutely crazy forever and ever like it's just going to be I don't even know what the right word for it because I will enjoy the theater of it but it's and by the way you should like 19 years later my dad grew up in Peterborough New Hampshire lifelong Red Sox fan he told me as a young child do not be a Red Sox fan pick another team it will just be pain if you're a Red Sox fan like me but you can't pick the Yankees you can't pick the Yankees pick a National League team so I picked the Mets. They are my local team. And even so, that 2004, I was working a night cops beat at a local paper then in Stanford, Connecticut. And I told my editors after they won that first game, I was like, I, not to be a bad worker bee guy, but I'm leaving early every goddamn night to watch like the last four innings of these games with my dad. It's still one of the fondest memories I have as a sports fan. And I'm not even a Red Sox fan. and never was a Red Sox fan. Um So, own it, but man, if it's another Boston team, oh my God.
2: I just love that over the course of what you described, Zach, you used the word culture, and it wasn't in reference to the Heat.
0: Heat Culture's and, fine. You know Heat Culture is just you it's just steady and good and furious and all that but it's like you don't worry about it fracturing really, right? Not not post like Hassan Whiteside and Deion Waiters in that era of Heat Culture.
2: Well, for for as, as great as the Heat have been during this run, I think that the the Heat Culture narrative is going to take a little bit of a hit if all of a sudden they are up 3-0 and they drop four straight games in the Eastern Conference Finals. That being said, The interesting part about all of this, as I watch this series unfold and I see the last couple months here, is I've never, in all my years covering the league, seen a team in Miami turn things around the way they did in this short of an amount of time. When I left that play-in game against the Hawks, I was completely convinced, and that was, what, six weeks ago now, maybe? I was convinced Milwaukee was going to shred them. That looked like a team that was just about about, to break apart. Were
0: were you convinced they were going to beat the Bulls? Because I wasn't convinced they were going to beat the Bulls until there was like three.
2: You're scarred from your years on the Bulls suck beat. The Bulls suck beat did me in because all I thought before that game was, I don't care how close it is, Jimmy Butler is not losing a game that means something to the Chicago Bulls. And lo and behold, it wasn't just Jimmy Butler. Remember, Max Bruce had 31. What team gave up on Max Struess a a little early, it looks like? The Chicago Bulls. So he also remembered. But Zach, that's the the part to me is that we've got the Heat that have turned things around. One more win. They go to the finals. It's an incredible story. You've got a Celtics team that in Game 3 looked like it was completely done. You were going to have to make potentially another coaching change uh, and all these players you've got decisions on are are, are Brown and Tatum, our core. Do we believe in these guys? If they can keep pushing this thing through and they can find a way to be the first team that comes all the way back from down to three, it's another I've never seen this before in this short of an amount of time. And it speaks to not only what the Red Sox did, but the belief that still existed even after Game 3 in that locker room. And there are going to be the stories that pop out, but what was so impressive to me is you hit the second half of Game 4, Miami, with one more push, figured, all right, they're going to the finals, they're going to get some time off, and they're going to play the Nuggets. And it didn't happen. And even if Miami goes and wins Game 6 and they find a way through, they absolutely screwed themselves because – they didn't allow for all that extra time to rest prior to the finals. You have added all the, the intensity of these last two games, all the minutes, and now you're going to walk into the finals against a Denver team that's been off for a week and a half. So in so many ways to me, I think Miami is in trouble, even if they get through this series because uh, they put themselves at such a Disadvantage the way they were unable to close the Celtics team that has belief now that didn't seem to exist a few days ago.
0: No disrespect to the heat. I, I mean that not in the Richard Jefferson way that disrespect is going to follow me saying no disrespect. <laughs> the heat have had a playoff run for the ages to be admired. There's probably a better than 50 50 chance that it will continue beyond this just because they have the three, two lead. Um, Denver's best-case scenario, I think, is the Heat sneaking out this series and having to really, really gut it out and play a ton of minutes. They keep home court advantage. The Celtics are just—they have a ceiling that's way higher than Miami's, and it's inexplicable that they don't hit that ceiling for stretches of every single game, and God forbid— if we get down to game six and the Celtics are up by three with five minutes left, what in the hell is going to happen? You just never know with their offense. Will Jason Tatum not touch the ball for five minutes? Will they all right. forget all the purposeful stuff they did last night when it wasn't zone, when it wasn't Zeller, when it wasn't love? It was as soon as Duncan Robinson comes in the game and they try to hide him on Grant Williams. Grant Williams pinned down for Jason Tatum. What are you going to do? you going to switch. You don't want to switch. So you're gonna chase him around the screen. I'm gonna get open on the pop. I'm gonna drive. I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a foul. Or I'm just gonna you're gonna leave me open for a three and I'm I'm gonna make it. Max Strus, Jason Tatum just made a decision. I'm ruining your life the entire game. Wherever you are, I'm finding you, I'm getting you switched on to me. And you can hang sometimes, but I can also make tough shots over you. And sometimes you can't hang. And the other thing about switching that people forget sometimes is switching on defense like Boston was. It it crazies up the matchups. It mucks yep. up the matchups. And they had two threes, I think, in the first quarter where they got them because Struess, I think, both times was stuck on Tatum once, and he remember he drove the corner, and then Smart replaced him, and he flipped it back to Smart for a corner three, and then he was stuck on Jalen Brown once because the matchups are all nutty, and you can't find your your guy. And I do think the Heat are going to have to find counters to Boston switching, and they'll and this is like the like posting up bam with Jimmy one pass away which is what happened because they would run a Jimmy bam pick and roll that like that's not going to work because they're going to no. dig off Jimmy and Spowen is going to get in the lab with his assistants and find spacing and cuts and I think he found something on bam running an inverted pick and roll as the ball handler that that seemed to catch them off guard he got a dunk out of that so the coaching chess match is going to continue To be really interesting, but I thought Boston was purposeful on offense, did not waste possessions, did not attack the wrong guy. And on defense, we've talked about the switching and the digging, but you go back and watch all the back screens that they run for their shooters. Miami, all the split cuts. Boston was on point. Sometimes that meant switching and the heat get creative and they... They go up as if they're going to set a screen, and then they slip out of it. Boston was on point. Nope, we're not switching that. We're going to stick with you. They're chasing what they were on it last night. And when they're on it, on both ends of the floor, they're just better. It doesn't matter where the games are. They're just better. Their problem is that they will go through six-minute stretches where they just forget how to be on it. And I think the Heat are going to need them to suffer through that kind of stretch at some point in these next two games to win one of them.
2: They have to. It has to be that way because the Celtics, when they are focused, uh, are, are just a cut or two above this Heat team. But Zach, what, what's fascinating about where the Heat are are potentially headed is that the reason there was no outward panic from Jimmy Butler, and this goes back the last few days, is because he said after that game four where they didn't close at home, he said, we've been better all year when we've made things tougher on ourselves. But the issue is that they've run up against a team that is better in those situations than they are. What team has risen to the occasion repeatedly now when it looks like, up, oh, it's just about over? They have screwed up uh, one too many times. Philly's got game six at home. If you get a solid Philly. performance, Philly. they're going to win. And and that didn't happen. And now the Celtics are 0-3. They're left for dead. Are they going to have to fire Missoula? Is anybody paying attention to what he's saying? And they show up in the second half of game four and they win. And they go home and absolutely dominate game five. So in so many different ways, the Celtics just do what they do better than what this Heat team does. So in my mind, you can go through any number of different scenarios heading into Game 6. If Miami wants to win, it needs the Jimmy Butler-type game that we saw against the Bucks in that series a couple times uh, and that we saw against the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game 6. Last year, they need him to take over and dominate because the Celtics look, finally, like they found their focus and they know how to protect it. Now can they disappear for a few minutes at various points? Absolutely. And to what you're saying, if Miami's gonna win, they're gonna have to. But Boston has found something that works for them. And I don't see that part of this changing in the short term with just how much confidence they're playing with right now.
0: Some of it is shot making, like Derek White, six threes. Some of them were tough, some of them were open. You don't really make six threes all that often, but they they have made Shots And just briefly, a couple other things I want to give love to. Rob Williams has gotten steadier defensively as the series has gone on. And I thought his positional defense last night, particularly when guarding Bam, sometimes switching, sometimes not, was just rock solid. Met Bam on the other end of those pick and rolls and said, you're not going to roll behind me for dunks. Right. And you can see that they're scared of Bam's dunks because they've actually conceded a couple layups on the pick and roll. Because they're worried about the lob to bam. Rob was rock solid. And Tatum, 11 assists. I've mentioned the passing and getting rid of the ball earlier. My favorite example from last night's game, I just want to shout it out. Because it's just a simple little thing. But every good team has possessions where you just pass for the sake of passing. For the sake of seeing what happens if you force the defense to do stuff. For the sake of making everyone feel like they're involved. So Tatum had the ball, it was, I think, 420 left in the third quarter. He's dribbling the ball on the left wing. Derek White's coming to set a pick for him, probably because Strews or Duncan Robinson is on him or somebody that Jason Tatum wants to beat up. And he sees on the right wing the heat starting to, like, overload the paint off Horford and Jalen Brown in the corner. And, and, like, Bam's way off Horford. I think there might have been some confusion. And Jason Tatum says, you know what? I'm a boarding plan A. I'm just going to slingshot this baby to Horford on the other side of the floor and see what happens. And what happened was both the Heat defenders on that side of the floor, I think it was Bam and Haywood Highsmith, closed out on Horford, which left Jalen Brown open in the corner. Horford hit Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown drove the baseline, hit Marcus Smart in the opposite corner. Marcus Smart swung it to Tatum all the way back around the horn to Jason Tatum. And Tatum got the ball up top rotations in chaos, nobody's on him, drove and drew a foul. That's passing just to do it. It's passing just to keep it moving. And as much as you want to hunt mismatches and there's a place for that and as much as you got to figure out the zone, sometimes you got to do that and make the heat make six rotations and and the Celtics have been, have done that much better in the last two games, man. You got to get some sleep before game 6 cuz I'm not going to be there. You're going to be there. Um perhaps I will see you on Memorial Day, back up here in the Northeast. But this has turned from, well, it was great theater of one kind after three games, the theater of of the car crash, and like, oh, my God. Can't look oh. away. And now it's, at some point, it's going to happen. And even Game 7, like I said, has happened in 20 years, and you can feel it. You can feel the tension. You can feel the history around the series. So enjoy Miami. Um, don't go clubbing on South Beach too late because it's no. a it's a big day tomorrow, Mister Friedel. Don't go to any Velvet Rope places where you got to wait outside. You know, just just take it easy down there, okay?
2: I'm making one stop at Capitol Grill. Oh, and and that will do it for me on South Beach. There you That's go. It. But but Zach, I'd I'd bring us full circle in this sense. You were talking about the Celtics passing the pass. What is so evident in their games in the last two? They trust each other. And the trust that wasn't there at various points, especially in game three that just disappeared, is palpable again on the floor. When you're making those extra passes and you're seeing guys hit shots, it makes you want to make the next pass and get the next guy involved. And that is why Boston is feeling so good about itself. And that's why. It is going to be very difficult for Miami to overcome the momentum that's been built up here recently.
0: You know what, Nick? I trust you. I would pass you the ball. I'd set you. I'd set a pin down screen for you if you had a mismatch. I'd, I, I trust you to keep the offense moving, all right?
2: It's like we talked about a few weeks ago, buddy. You just want somebody to believe in you in life, and you need that belief, and you need somebody, and it was Jalen Brunson – Uh, A few weeks ago, the sad part for Jalen Brunson was he couldn't trust anybody else on that Knicks team. And it really, it really stunted their growth as a group. But uh, both of these teams left Boston, Miami. They're they're They they can trust each other. But that's that's all we all need in life is somebody who believes in us. So I appreciate that. And I'd like to think that if you got me the ball on the switch. I'd knock it down.
0: You know, as you were saying all that, I was thinking about the word believe. This is how my crazy brain works. Ted Lasso time, baby. On I, I, no sleep. Then I was thinking about Ted Lasso. Then I thought of the 69 Mets and you got to believe and how they bring that slogan back every time the Mets are good. And you know what happened after that, Nick Friedel? I then thought of Armando Benitez blowing oh, no. a save in game one of the 2000 oh, World Series and Timo Perez not running hard into home when the ball hit the top of the wall. And I'm angry now. Because I I, I just, I'll never get over the 2000 World Series. Now my whole day is ruined. Nick Friedel, thank you, sir. Enjoy Miami. I seem to have a running theme
2: on this show of pissing people off, Zach. <laughs> so I'm sorry it was you at the very end here.
0: <laughs> it's not your fault. My brain is broken. Armando Benitez and Timo Perez and uh, Roger Clemens and the, the sawed-off bat broke my brain forever, and I will never get over it. Thank you, sir.
2: I believe in you, buddy. It'll be okay.
0: Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off. Your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name and the name of this podcast. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. And now, boy, am I excited to welcome in our next guest. Just sitting in Denver like the Nuggets. I mean, Jokic had time to go back to Serbia if he wanted to. That's how long the Nuggets are going to be off. The Denver Nuggets! For the first time in their NBA history, not in their franchise history, but in their NBA history, are in the NBA Finals, fresh off a sweep of the Los Angeles Lakers that had a close buddy of mine. Shout out to Scott and his son, who I will not name, running through the streets of Denver. Lifelong Nuggets fan with brooms in their hands. <laughs> Shout out, Scott. I miss you. I hope to see you soon. Um, Adam Mars of
1: DNVR Sports. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. This was a season of first. First time being the number one seed. First time getting a sweep. First time beating the Lakers in a playoff series. And, of course, the first time in the NBA Finals. So, uh, a a fitting season of first for the Nuggets.
0: We have no X's and O's and strategy to talk about because we do not know who the Nuggets are going to play. So, you can just luxuriate in a moment of unprecedented Almost triumph, not quite triumph yet, right. because this team is built to win the title. Obviously, um, I I have not spent all that much time in Denver in my life. Um, I know enough to know that there's the Broncos and everything else, um, and there's a huge gap between the Broncos and everyone else. But there's the Rockies, there's the Avalanche, and there's the Nuggets. I want me to I want you to take me through in your lifetime where the Nuggets have ranked on that hierarchy. What this finals run means for the city and the franchise and whether and how you can feel their status in the city changing as they get this far and they have this transformative franchise player who's going to go down as one of the greatest players in the history of the league.
1: Man, it's kind of a long, I'm thinking of the long version of the short version here, Zach. If you go back to the 80s, you've got the Broncos who are king, but you got the Nuggets who are the second team and it's a two sport town. You know, those are your two professional teams. And the Nuggets were very popular, sold out. You know, there was enthusiasm for them. The 90s were a really, really bad era for the Nuggets. They had the 94-1-8 upset, first 1-8 upset. That's like a little blip in what was otherwise an atrocious 10-year run for the Denver Nuggets that I think lost a lot of people. And in that decade, you pick up the Colorado Rockies and you pick up the Colorado Avalanche who immediately win the Stanley Cup. So Denver goes from the Nuggets being a distant second, but an important second, to all the way down to fourth in a lot of ways, just because of how bad they were, how the city changed, and how those other teams arrived. Avalanche win another Stanley Cup in 2001. They got two championships. The Broncos have two championships in the 90s. Which team are you paying attention to? Those are the teams that have the Hall of Famers. You get Carmelo Anthony, and there's a little bit of a run there, and then obviously uh, at the end of that uh, decade, things go dark again for a little while, so the Nuggets, yes, have had this like up and down relationship with the city of Denver, but certainly have been a third or fourth figure in the sports scene for the last 20 years, if you said on aggregate. But yes, this last run with Nikola Jokic, who I think is going to be on the Mount Rushmore, if not already on the Mount Rushmore of Denver sports athletes. Um, this right, is a special so who, era. So what's the round? What is the Mount Rushmore? Elway? He's he's the biggest lock. You have to Elway is an absolute lock. Who's so number you, two? I'll give you the candidates here. You have Terrell Davis, who's you know an MVP and, and won two, two Super Bowls. Short window, but was it was so high. You've got Patrick Waugh, who might be the greatest goalie in NHL history. I forgot
0: about Patrick Wah and his and his head movements.
1: Um. <laughs> You've got Joe Sackett. Who uh, you know won two championships here, and it's just sort of a huge figure. So I think those four guys probably default to it. You could say Peyton Manning, another short run, and I just don't, personally I wouldn't have him on there. And then you have Jokic. So those are the six guys that I think are vying for that title. And again, all of those guys have championships. Jokic is on the doorstep of one. He's the only one with two MVPs. I, I just think he's going to wind up there when it's all said and done. So. So let me just. He, he's on it already. It's, it's,
0: it's, uh, my producer Dan is saying Todd Helton got hosed. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know what to make of the Rockies in the thin air and, you know, Larry Walker, oh, no. oh, you know, on no. Dante Bichette. Like, I just don't know what to make of it. And I haven't followed baseball cl- closely uh-huh. since those guys were on the Rockies. Um, He's already on the Mount Rushmore. It's over. And I'm going to make what maybe. be – look, I am not qualified to make this argument. I don't know John Elway's career stats and where he ranks right. and, like, who's the best quarterback of all time and this and that. He, I find it hard to believe that if Jokic stays healthy, he will not be on par in basketball with however John Elway is regarded in football. And I know that football is number one in Denver. But, you know, look, there's been a lot of – there's been a lot of talk in the last 48 hours about media coverage of the Denver Nuggets or lack thereof and whether the Nuggets are a quote unquote interesting team. And I think anybody who knows me and has listened to my podcast and read my stuff for the last six years know that I am a, a Nuggets um, from afar, a just super aficionado. Um, but I can tell you, like, that's a that that question is a real question that is being considered at the highest levels of national television right now. And the sub-question of that is how do we make sure Jokic is not Tim Duncan 2.0 where he just never resonates among casual fans? And how can we get casual – Not I hate the word casual. How can we get fans who are Lakers fans, Warriors fans, kids right. who are LaMelo Ball fans? who right. is this? The jersey I see most commonly around my neighborhood is a freaking Hornets jersey. How can we get them – to watch these games and under and, and and fall in love with Jokic and as a basketball player and there are a lot of ways into that but to to the Mount Rushmore point one of the things I've been saying is I I think we need to just start like looking at his his stats and projecting what his stats are going to be regular season he's already at 12,000 points 6,000 rebounds 4,000 assists Just project like six more healthy seasons and you're going to get into historic territory right away. His career playoff averages, I believe, are 27, 11, and 7 on like 53% shooting. Like not not to be heretical, but like that's on par with pretty much anybody in overall impact that has ever played basketball. And so one way to sort of pitch like here's how we should talk about Jokic is – if they win the title and he's a two-time MVP and he stays healthy for a decent amount of his the rest of his career, he's going to be not only a Mount Rushmore figure in Denver. He's going to be, I mean, not on the four-person Mount Rushmore in the NBA, but in like that pantheon of right. 10, 12,
1: 15 guys to ever play the game. That's what we're talking about. Statistically, I mean, it, it sounds crazy only because, you know, we always look at the playoff success and oftentimes in a player's career that comes later. It comes about now in their career when He's they 20, start he to just win. turned 28 like three months ago. So this is about the time where it's like, OK, it's the schedule is you're you're ready for it. So if he does that statistically, I think you're right. And here's I, you asked like, how can we get people interested? I think the first step there's a lot of things here, but the first step is to make sure we get the facts right. Because I've heard a lot of conversation in the last two months about he's never had a good playoff run. he's oh, never this is been- I, I, that conversation is so ridiculous
0: that I actually actively ignore it. So you've actually you, you've I guess had to listen to it. So tell me where where is this coming from? How is it, it possible yeah. that it exists? I don't. It's understand a lot that. of
1: a, a lot of you know mostly television talking heads, but influential television talking heads that are well. He's never had a good playoff run. This or that. He's, he's one had one nothing people- but good playoff runs. One of the few players who puts up great numbers, whose numbers have gone up in the playoffs. You know, the assists have gone down, but the scoring, the production, and then the big moments. He has a lot of big moments, including a game winner in a game seven uh, over the defensive, the reigning defensive player of the year. You know, some monster triple doubles in a game seven. So he has some big time performances. He played 65 minutes in a playoff game. You're talking about Rudy Gobert in the bubble, by the way, for people who don't
0: remember. And just had a game winner in a series against LeBron and Anthony Davis.
1: And then I think you start to craft some of the narratives. So one thing you compared him to Tim Duncan, and Tim Duncan, obviously a great player. I think if you just said, "Would you rather watch a Tim Duncan highlight reel or a Nikola Jokic highlight reel?" It's not to me. It's not comparable. Maybe it's a, a controversial statement, but I think Jokic, he has Magic Johnson passing. Like the the passing reel is is one of those ones where if you just watch the top thirty passes of his career, they're all will make your jaw drop. So the highlight reel, I think, is. Is in a class that is worthy of, you know, hey, this is a guy worth watching. You never know what you're going to get. And then, of course, I think one of the things that have really popped for him in this playoffs is he's a really good tough shot maker in a unique way. We often think of tough shot as spinning, fall away, looks beautiful. Jordan with the leg out, you know, and, and holds it. Jokic has all of these game winners tough shots, clutch buckets that look like mistakes. And if you see it once, you might think, my God, that's the luckiest thing. But, Zach, you've watched him all this time. How many big shots does he have that look like – what was that?
0: Well, I mean, J.J. Redick said the words Sombor Shuffle on first take, I think. And I don't think enough people know what that is for right. him to say that on TV. And that that's an issue in and of itself. But one of the other things I pitched is – if you let me do it, I would like to go in my bank of Jokic stuff as we get to the finals and do a TV segment that's, here are five signature Nikola Jokic plays. Oh, like it. the Sombor shuffle and probably yeah. four passes that he makes regularly. Now, they're spectacular, so it's not like he's making them every possession. Right. But here are things to look for, and here's why this guy's special. And the, my, my maybe my favorite one is one where he's just holding the ball 30 feet from the basket on the right wing, not looking at anything, and just whips the ball to the opposite corner. And I just laugh every time. And I think there is an appetite for that because in his way, I, and I also think you would mentioned Magic Johnson. With with a guy like Jokic, who's a quiet personality, he's not quiet. I mean, he's funny and he's, he's, he's entertaining in his own way, but he's not going out of his way to be on Instagram and have memes right. and engage with the media. And that's fine. That's his prerogative. I feel like the discussions about him on a national scale are always like a year behind yeah. where he actually is as a player. And that's been other. So, so like you hear sometimes like, well, you know, by the end of his career, he might, he might be like two, two or three years ago. It was like, he, you know, he's in the running for best big man passer of all time. It's like, no, no, he, he already is like, that's over. Yeah, that, and that now be. it's like, you know, if he keeps this up, like you might mention him toward the end in the same breath as Jason Kidd and Steve Nash and magic Johnson. Like, no, no, that's, that's, for his, that's what he is already. He's already one of the best
1: passers in NBA history. Like that's what he is. When you break down it, when you we you go through skills, we talk about the passing and maybe the post up or the size or this or that. But there's a couple other micro skills that when you point them out, you realize how impactful they are. One of them is he has suction cups on his hands, and I don't know how, but he just grabs the ball in these weird, like off rebounds or bad pass. Like you give him a bad pass that you think there's no way he'll catch it, and just somehow it sticks to his hand and he lays it up. And then he has the play, you talk about signature plays, this is a lame one, but again, you point it out, you start to notice, because he doesn't jump very high, he rebounds so well sometimes by tapping the ball really quickly off of a rebound, so that his second jump, he can grab it, so two players jump, he taps it quickly, comes down, goes back up and grabs the second one, and then finishes it all all quickly, and it's something that happens maybe every other game, he'll get a rebound and a putback just off of that, tapping it real quick. He's probably the best floater zone shooter we've ever seen. You know, I'm talking about up of up all there. players. He has the best touch on those. So you start to break down these skills and you think, okay, not only is he the best passing big man, he might be the best floater zone su- shooter. He has arguably the best hands ever, or at least the S tier. He's tied for best hands ever of any player from any position. And then he's an elite post-up player, a great jump shooter and great screener, and then reads the court in the S tier. So he's got all of these skills that add up to say... If you're number one at four or five different things on a basketball court, you're probably an all-time great.
0: I want to go back. I don't want to crown Jokic prematurely, although we've already clearly done that. Um, I just like, what's the city like right now? Is it Nuggets mania? Has he has he become uh, – has he and Jamal Murray, who's been spectacular the whole playoffs and their two-man game is as beautiful as basketball gets. Is it like – You go to a bar and people are talking about the nuggets is it you have friends who have never really been basketball fans who are like now asking you questions about
1: the nugget like is all that happening right now i've definitely heard from some people from high school that i haven't heard from for a long time you know just knowing i'm doing this and haven't reached out maybe follow on facebook or this or that so yeah there's some of that I, i will say and then yes to just the conversation you know nuggets is not a thing you talk about at the checkout counter it is a thing in the Broncos season, especially in their heyday. They've been bad for a while. But in their heyday where Sunday after a big win, you'd, wherever you would go, go to the gas station and they're talking about, hey, man, do you like that game? It's not quite to that levels. But I will say there's an interest. You see a lot more jerseys around. I think it could be more, though. And, I, and one of the things is I would love to see a little bit more billboards. I think the Nuggets could do a little bit of this of like, hey, paint the city blue, blue and gold for a little bit. So I think it can be more. But I'm curious to see what it looks like here in the next week.
0: Yeah, whether you get the first two games, which means Miami wins the East, or you get three, four, six, which means Boston wins the East, you're going to feel like when the the finals feels so much different than the conference finals, it's staggering. Like walking to the Celtics game yesterday in Boston versus walking to a Celtics game in the finals is when the weather is good. It's just a, a completely different level of scene. The world is going to descend on Denver. The sports world is going to descend on Denver, and it's just it's just different. It just feels way way different than a conference finals game feels crowded
2: media yeah. wise,
0: but it doesn't feel like crazy. It doesn't feel like you're just in a mob scene all the time, and there's famous people all around. Like the finals right, feels right. like that. Um, I don't know how many people know that listen to this podcast know this, but you took a whole crew with you. DNVR did you and Harrison Wynn and a couple other guys to Serbia last summer. And you filmed a bunch of YouTube episodes. You filmed a documentary about it that I haven't watched the whole thing of. I'm derelict in doing that because life is too busy, but I'm going to do it because yeah. I've been to Serbia and I've been, yeah. I go to the Balkans every, every summer. Like I, I want you to take me through. Why did you do that? And you went to Sombor where Jokic is from and where All Jokic right. has his horses and likes to go in the off season. Why did you do that and what did you get out of it? Just yeah. take us through that a little bit because that's a that's a big undertaking. You have children, you have families, no. it's far away, it's expensive. It's, expensive. it's not yeah. like you're going to go there and get like a 2-hour sit down with Jokic right. just because you came to Sombor. Right. Um, but that's a cool cultural experience, I'm sure and unlike anything you guys
1: have ever done in your lives probably. Well, what you got out of it, we'd fill up the entire podcast with me talking about that, but I'll, you know, the idea to go, DNVR is a unique company. I'll say line item number one, it was fun. It's a fun idea. And at DNVR, we're lucky enough that we get the luxury to do that, to say, hey man, this would be really interesting. We don't even know what we're gonna get from it, but we just know we'll get something. We trust ourselves that we go there, something's gonna manifest itself, and and that'll be the story. But number two, we have a big following in Serbia. I mean, that is a basketball nation. It is a basketball nation. So you, we have a big following out there, and would hey, let's go meet some of our fans. Let's go talk to them. Amen. They're all gonna. What time will the games be on there? If they're eight thirty, five, six. They will. They
0: will if I could be in a bar in Belgrade at tip off of one of those games, it's going to be insane. Like it's not going to be like people waking up and like, I'll flip on the game in my living room. The bars are going to be open and they're going to be crowded for these finals games.
2: And
1: by the way, Zach, they've been doing this for 30 years. I mean, they first had their players arrive in the NBA in 1989 with Vladi Divac. So they've been doing this for a long time of, Hey, that's the rhythm of it. Los Angeles was even an hour back. So they would be up even an hour earlier, but Um, you know, so you have, um, so, so we wanted to go out there and meet our fans. And then lastly, to learn a little bit more about Serbian culture and Serbian basketball history, which I knew there was a history, but I think like most people, you know, like, okay, there's some players that come from that region. I did not know, Zach, it's perhaps the basketball nation. I said yesterday on a show, us, the basketball nation, and then the Soviet union or Lithuania. and, And I think I said, then Serbia, the hate mail I received for saying that. They say no, 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 no. We are at least number two. Don't like, don't put us below anybody else. And if you look at Yugoslavia as a whole, which of course formally comprised of all of those, uh, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, of all those nations, they have a lot of gold medals. They have a lot of history that goes back a hundred years. By the way, nineteen twenty-three was when basketball was introduced to Serbia from an American Red Cross worker. So we are on year one hundred of basketball there. Perhaps not coincidental, but. It, they had this history and this infrastructure and this pride that they really purposefully set out to make themselves into a basketball nation. And as a result, they had an incredible 20-year run of gold medals in international competition, including over the U.S., multiple times.
0: Uh, Spain and France both now have a say in the number two conversation currently because they they just – it the players change and they just keep making the finals and the semifinals of all the big European international tournaments – But, you know, Serbia probably provided Jokic plays, probably has the second best team on paper in in the in the world. But so who did you meet there? Did you meet any Jokic family and friends? Did you see the horses? Did you see any of the horses? Did you get to
1: ride in the harness with his horses? Did you get anything like that? Didn't get a ride in the uh, the harness, but I'll tell you this quick anecdote is that, you know, I wrote Nicola before said, Hey, we're going over, we're going to go to Sombor. Is there anything off limits? Like, I don't want to trudge. That's his private space. Is there anywhere off limits? And he said, no, but you won't find it. So I made that a challenge. <laughs> like, let's go find out. And as a result, you know, we did, we went to KK Joker, which is the basketball club in Sombor that he now owns KK Joker. And he operates. Uh, we got to go there where he grew up playing the game and, and, Met his former coaches, saw all of the infrastructure and all the cool things that he has going on there. We went to the horse stables, yes, to to both the track, the hippodrome, and also to his stable where he received the MVP. We were escorted there by one of his personal friends. We went to his favorite restaurant and had his favorite meal. Which, by the way, these are stories that when you're here, you know, through the years, you accumulate these little details, but they don't make sense to you. But what's his
0: favorite? What's his favorite
1: meal? So it's called. He called it fish stew, um, but but it's called paprikash. So it's a and, and I didn't know this. So you get that detail and you think okay, well I'll look that up when I go there. Apparently it is in Sambor, that's what it's known for. So he's an extremely locally proud person that Sambor is known for paprikash and that's what we you know that's his favorite meal. But we got to have that at his favorite restaurant. So all of those things like when we went to Sambor, we got the full red carpet rolled out for us. Um and then, you know, a bunch of other people, former basketball players, his agent uh, people at the ba- Serbian Basketball Federation who really helped us through walk through the history of, of basketball in Yugoslavia. So there was no shortage of people. I-, I slept maybe four hours a day for eight days straight. And those were conversations that started at eight in the morning and ended at four in the morning and basically just repeated every single day. Did
0: Jokic flee when he knew you guys were coming? We see like, this is a great time for me to go see Somewhere even more, somewhere more remote than somewhere because these dudes are coming from America. I want
1: no part of it. I mean, he sees us all year long, so I'm sure there was an element of that. But the thing that made the trip perfect, and I mean this when I say that trip was perfect and and everything worked out unbelievably well, is that he was with the national team that week. So he wasn't actually around. Oh, that's right. But it culminated with, we spent one week there and it culminated that on the last day he played against Giannis and Team Greece, Team Serbia versus Giannis and Team Greece, in an important World Cup qualifying game. They needed that game to qualify for this year's World Cup, and it was t- it took place in Belgrade, which I think Jokic has only played in the last... Since he became came to the NBA. I think it's his second time playing in Belgrade. So for a lot of fans in Belgrade, that's the only time they get a chance to watch him play. So it was a huge game, and it was an unbelievable game. Um, I went through the sort of five-year arc of this
0: team a couple episodes ago, and I just... I want you as someone who follows it day-to-day on the ground there. Um, Just the journey from Jamal Murray tearing his ACL until now. And obviously a lot of things change between then and now in terms of personnel. KCP, Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, all hand-in-glove fits for how the Nuggets want to play. Tweaks to their defensive style. um, More variety in their defense. Going small with Aaron Gordon at the five, which is something you and I talked about months and months ago. A lot of things have changed. Um, Aaron Gordon was already there, and I want to talk more about him later. But, you know, you have these two seasons after his injury that are successful seasons. They're MVP seasons for Jokic. You win around one year, lose to the champs the next year in the first round. But did you as someone covering the team, did the fan base, was were there thoughts during that period of like, yeah, this is cool, but... It, it, it's empty and did did we miss it is is this going to be it or was there always a faith that like this is we're just waiting for this
1: team to be fully formed again and it'll be there I mean well, we called it purgatory so I think that gives you a sense of what it felt like it felt like what is the story here they're just we're just waiting we're all holding our breath and I'll say this you know If we go back the timeline that you're talking about, you get Aaron Gordon. You've talked about this on your show numerous times, but you get Aaron Gordon and there was a seven or eight game run there where the Nuggets looked like, oh, we're it's time. All right. This is what we've been waiting for. Let's go. And right then Murray, you know, tears his ACL and it's all over. You, I will say when you ask about what was the value of that? So I think Nuggets fans, everybody knew that the Nuggets weren't winning a title until Murray came back and was a hundred percent. Was that one year? Was that two? Turned out it was two, but during that time, it, it wasn't inconsequential because I think two things happened. One, the chemistry between Jokic and Aaron Gordon went through the roof by necessity. Aaron Gordon spent a whole season being the second best nugget. So you're going to develop a chemistry there that is paying dividends now. But more importantly, and they, by the way, they get along really, really well on and off the floor. They are, they are very tight. Personality wise, it's underrated how much we talk about basketball fit and, you know, how do these players play each other, but personality fits important too and, A lot of personality fits on this Nuggets team. But the most important thing to come out of the last two years is Nikola has always been a reluctant scorer, and he increased that even in his MVP season. Murray got hurt at the end of that. He won the MVP with Murray for most of that. But I think that going into that playoffs and then obviously spending the next season without Murray or Porter forced him to learn, I think, to be more comfortable being aggressive, to score a lot more. And so when those guys came back, he... Perfectly and seamlessly went back to being more of a distributor. The points went down a little bit, but we saw a 53-point game in this playoffs. We've seen some big scoring outputs. It's there now, and he is so comfortable being a big-game scorer. And just flipping the switch, that's one of the things about Nikola is it's not, I'll come in, tonight I have to be aggressive, tomorrow I'll be – No, he just reads it, and if it's, oh, they're guarding me this way, 50 points.
0: The Gordon trade is – is a visionary move by Tim Connolly. And oh my God, would I love to have Tim Connolly on this podcast right now, because this has to be such a combination of emotions swirling within him that he left this team knowing what it might do to take a job in Minnesota, made a gigantic trade right away that hasn't worked. And now is watching this with, I'm sure a combination of pride, longing, bittersweet, whatever. Um, but it was, it was a trade that was in the works for a long time, a player that they had looked at as a Jeremy Grant replacement and a better fit to Jeremy Grant on a lot of levels for a long All time. Right. And it was a trade that just felt immediately when it happened before Aaron Gordon set foot there as not only a, a trade that was like basketball destiny for the Nuggets, but basketball destiny for Aaron Gordon, who I had written about so many times in Orlando as just, miscast by the fault of the magic and by his own ambitions, I think of being like a ball dominant three and never kind of embracing really what he should be as a player, which is I used to call it his version of Draymond green, you know, not as good of a playmaker, not quite as good of a defender, but a a decent playmaker and an excellent defender. And he found the guy to bring that out of him in Jokic. And now with Murray, even more so because he doesn't have to score as much, And it's just as perfect as a fit could be. And you could argue like, oh, well, it's easy to fit around Jokic and Murray, two brilliant players. He's a perfect fit. And I felt in game four against the Lakers, you know, uh, there's a lot to process. There's the, the awe of LeBron putting up 40 and playing essentially the whole game with a foot injury. There's Anthony Davis disappearing and then coming back and scoring 10 in the fourth quarter. There's, Denver being on the verge, on the verge, on the verge of history. Jokic and Murray finally getting there. And I I found myself also gravitating toward Aaron Gordon, who the Lakers were ignoring and daring to shoot threes, putting Anthony Davis on him. And you could see some burblings on Nuggets Twitter of like, well, we got to cut his minutes. We got to get more shooting out there. And they did cut his minutes in game four. Yeah, And I, my response to that in private conversations with the Nuggets, people that I just gossip with and others was he's too good. He's too good and too essential to just all of a sudden he's Jared Vanderbilt and we have to limit his minutes. And game four, he made his open threes. They used him as a facilitator. They used him as a screener on back screens, which was the adjustment. And it was like the fully formed Aaron Gordon game that they're going to need more of to win the title. I found myself thinking about him almost more than any other
1: player in that game. I mean, he was. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that arc of it, where Game Four he comes back in, because Game Three was the one you closed with Jeff Green. Game Four he comes. I'm back I'm sorry, in.
0: I, I misspoke. I have got my games whatever game. Yeah, Game it, Three he was benched in the end, kind of.
1: But but when but to close it out and be back on the court was was that was a, it was an interesting story arc to me as well. And you're right, he does all these things well. But in the playoffs, look, it's no shame to say great players sometimes get played off of the floor for matchups at this level, and I it's not a shameful thing to me. No. It's hey. This matchup and in this moment, not, sometimes not even a matchup. It's just, hey, last three minutes, we need to be able to do this one this thing. This lineup's rolling. This yeah. lineup's rolling. We're sticking and, with it. But you brought up the game four adjustments. And I you never know how to credit these things. But after the game, Michael Malone called Jokic Coach Jokic, right? He took over. And I know Malone well enough to know. The offense in that series was great. The Nuggets, I think, once Jokic on the court, 125 offensive rating. So it's I think there's a reluctance to say, hey, we need to focus on how to attack them when they're not guarding Aaron Gordon. In my opinion, I think the Nuggets focused in on their defense and some of their other things. But the offense, for all the laughing about the Rui adjustment, oh, that's going to stop him, that actually is the best way to guard Jokic. If you have a four, big enough and smart enough to just kind of keep him, you know, uh, make him work. And then you have a roaming five that that has been where teams have found some success. Again, if the bar is lower from one twenty five offensive rating, can we just get that down to one twenty? That's the, manageable. That's you get it that's, down
0: to like, if we have a good offensive game, we can
1: win. And so that's what the teams are trying to do. And it did stymie Denver. And it's why Jeff Green closed in game three. But with Aaron Gordon, I really suspect that Jokic was the one in game four saying like, no, we need to solve this problem now in the clutch offensively. And when you say using him as a screener, to me, that's the ultimate thing. Anthony Davis was dead tired and he wasn't going to go out on the perimeter to contest his jumpers. So either he's going to hit four or five in the fourth, or you're going to have to use him differently. And using him as this sort of flare screen setter on the weak side, knowing Anthony Davis isn't going to provide any help on those actions to me is the best way. They did that in game four with Aaron Gordon, and I'm hopeful That Coach Jokic and Coach Malone, I don't want to take it away, but Coach Jokic has said, hey, this is what we need to do when and if teams do this. And if so, we're going to really gain a rhythm at attacking it.
0: And I've talked a lot about the Lakers. I had Dave McMenamin on two days ago, so you can listen to that, Lakers fans, if you want, about how competitive that sweep was and how this Lakers season was a success, regardless of how it ended. And every game in that series, it's a cliche to say every game tells a story. Every game in that series was a story and and kind of like a poetic one. So game one LeBron misses the tying three. they play more cards than they think they're gonna play the All Lakers right. to try to steal that game. Game two I've talked about is like I watched that game with like, oh that's a moment for the nuggets. Yeah. that's that's a prove it moment rallying from a deficit, getting on the verge of a 20 lead in, in a place that you've never gotten out of in the NBA and then having it start to unravel a little bit late and gutting it out even though it was starting to unravel. Game three, foul trouble, all that stuff. They find a way to win it on the road. And then game four, just nip and tuck the entire way. This team is not going away. We can't land a knockout punch. And rediscovering Aaron Gordon and and gutting it out and and Aaron Gordon helping get the stop at the end of the game. By the way, right. no one talked right. about this. No, I've given up on... The Nuggets get the ball back up to and a three and a half second differential between shot clock and game clock. I guess nobody will ever do the thing where you just run the whole shot clock down and launch a three and end the game. Like I'm screaming at Jamal Murray. Why are you shooting with like seven <laughs> on the shot clock, man? Just stop. Just <laughs> heave it up. No one will. I guess no one will ever do it.
1: Yeah, I, that's, that's a funny detail. I, Magic Johnson had one, by the way. I've seen a clip of it where he gets a steal And he throws the perfect pass all the way down court so it rolls slowly to the corner. And it wastes maybe seven seconds just rolling, and then the buzzer sounds before it goes out of bounds. And I think that's the greatest throwaway pass I've ever seen. But um, to your point, here's one thing, because I don't mind that these were all close games. They all could have gone either way. They, They were that close. One thing, though, I push back on, because I think Denver dominated the series. And one reason is, what would LeBron have had in game five? Because Anthony Davis didn't have anything in game three and four. And when going into the series, one of the things I said was, All right, this series is every other game. The Lakers, the Nuggets have the endurance and and I and I think the toughness edge in this one. And when I say toughness, what I just mean is they're younger, and Jokic and Murray are both so good when they're exhausted. They just are so good at pushing through it. It's why they've come back from 2-3-1 deficits. It's one of the reasons they've come back from 2-3-1 deficits, and they've been so good in elimination games. They have an incredible ability to play through the, the, you know, those moments, and that's how this series played out. Game one, Anthony Davis was a monster. Jokic obviously outplayed him. That was an all-time performance. Game two, you saw him run out of steam. Games three and four, I think he had nothing left, and that was part of the design. Is Jokic is one of the most exhausting players to go up against. LeBron guarded him for a while. Emptied the chamber. And guarded them quite well, too. And if there was a game five, I just would have taken Nuggets by 25 points. And if there was a game six, I would have taken them by 30 points. It just—Denver, I think, wore them out and was gaining an edge even with the wins. If it get, went longer, I think they were just building towards something later in the series. So I almost started
0: watching film of Nuggets heat previous Uh-oh. matchups after the heat went up 3-0 and then I and I stopped myself because if there's one thing I I hate in life it's wasted time time that ends up wasted and I stopped myself cuz I was like you know what mm. I'm not going to tempt the basketball gods with a com- like I'm not going to do 2 hours of this and then the Celtics win in 7 and those 2 hours will have been lit on fire I'm going to wait I'm going to wait so I haven't done any of it yet and now I'm goddamn not doing any of it until that series is over however it ends have you thought about matchups yet? I mean, we talked about the heat earlier and and the the fact that you obviously get home court in Denver the nuggets do it if the heat win, but have you thought about which team you because i mean
1: i don't have you just have you thought about it yet? Well let's start with the basics one you have home court advantage and the other you don't, and Denver is incredibly good at home, so automatically you look at there's a big difference there, but miami I've always thought this Miami is the best matchup for Denver of all the good teams in the NBA. I think of every good team. That's the team that Denver has just had at least regular season dominance over. And it starts with Bam Adebayo is a phenomenal center against all but two or three players in the NBA. One of them, and probably most important is Jokic. He's too big. He's too tall. And Bam, Jokic, is really good against defenders that play the positional type defense and put a hand up because he doesn't care if you force him this way or that way. If you're not blocking his shot, he's just shooting a comfortable jump hook. And Bam falls in that category. On top of that, then you look at Aaron Gordon, who's one of the sneaky most important players, because if you can't guard him with size and, and physicality, then it your defense is constantly having to collapse on the paint. Well, Aaron Gordon has a great size matchup in that series. So to me, Denver has dominated the heat for the last several years. And that matchup to me is one of the best ones. The Celtics is a tough one. They, I just said it takes two bigs to guard them. Al Horford with Robert Williams roaming is a really good you know, on-ball defender, very crafty, and then help side shot blocker. That's really tough. And they have the perimeter defenders and Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown to make things difficult on Murray. So to me, this is about as big of a gap between good and bad matchups for the Nuggets as you can get coming out of the East.
0: Well, we'll see what happens. That's all the analysis I'm doing on coming out of the East because I'm not doing any of it more, uh, any more of it. I will see you soon, one way or the. Are you going
1: to travel to all the games? I'm not sure yet how it'll happen. Um, I'm really hoping everybody comes to Denver. But if so either way, you're gonna. You, you've been saying for years now you're coming by the bar. I'm, I'm gonna cashing come. that check this 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 next. Oh week. No,
0: no no! If I get to Denver, I'm coming to the bar, and um, it'll and I'm going to bring some friends to the bar too. Perfect. Um. Look, I just think the series ended really fast. LeBron hinted at retirement. Um, The East series has turned dramatic. I just wanted to take half an hour and just sort of talk about the Nuggets, even though we're going to have now two and a half more weeks to talk about the Nuggets once the finals get rolling. But your work covering this team in various outlets has been, I mean, foundational to my understanding of it in the nitty gritty. And I think lots of fans and then transitioning to what you're doing now at DNVR has been really fun to watch. And um, I just, I just one way or another win, lose, enjoy the finals. Cause like the world is coming to Denver now. I mean, that's what happens. And so uh, you've done great work. Thank you for indulging me yet again on this podcast. And I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Can't wait, Zach. Thanks so much.